Peace be upon you. So when I was a kid going to a Muslim youth camp, we had a counselor who had this funny story. So she was hosting this family from uh, Saudi Arabia who's very religious. And she thought for a fun activity, she's going to take them to Disneyland. And uh, when she gets to Disneyland, she's trying to get them to go on the Pirates of the Caribbean ride. And it became a whole ordeal because the uh, family, specifically the father, was trying to convince her that pirates are haram. Therefore, going on this ride that glorifies uh, pirates would be a sin, and therefore they are not allowed to go on this ride. And we were laughing about this, but it's sad that there's so much truth to this, that the religious crowd uh, among Muslims, they have a tendency of over-prohibiting these blessings that God has given to us. And when they do this, it's showing that they're following a source other than that of God in the Quran. Because God is very clear in the Quran what is prohibited. If we prohibit more than what God has advocated in the Quran, therefore we're following a separate source other than that of God and the Quran. In Surah 29 verse 68 it reads, Who is more evil than one who fabricates lies and attributes them to God, or rejects the truth when it comes to him? Is hell not a just retribution for the disbelievers? If we're claiming that God prohibited something that he did not prohibit, therefore we're attributing lies to God, and God is calling this one of the most horrendous offenses. In Surah 6 verse 150, it reads, Say, bring your witnesses who had testified that God has prohibited this or that. If they testify, do not testify with them, nor shall you follow the opinions of those who reject our revelations and those who disbelieve in the hereafter and those who stray away from their Lord. There is this tendency among religious uh, groups where they want to over-prohibit what God has prohibited for them. We see this in the children of Israel, and we see this again with the, uh, the Muslims, where God has given us a book specifying exactly what's prohibited. And people are thinking that they're being more godly than God. And this is obviously wrong. This is erroneous to think. God is the one who sets the limits of what is prohibited. If we're prohibiting beyond what God has set those limits to, then we're only following our own opinions. In Surah 7 verse 32, it says, Say, who prohibited the nice things God has created for his creatures and the good provisions? Say, such provisions are to be enjoyed in this life by those who believe. Moreover, the good provisions will be exclusively theirs on the day of resurrection. We thus explain the revelations for people who know. These blessings that God has given us, these infinite number of blessings, if we prohibit them, we're only causing pain and devastation upon ourselves. And God gives us this example in the Quran that when we do this, it's at a, as a retribution. We see this with the example of the children of Israel, where they over-prohibited what God has commanded them to prohibit. And by doing so, they suffered for their own uh, innovations, the consequences of such prohibitions. So inshallah, in this episode, I want to look at some of the most common prohibitions that you see among Muslim masses and see what does the Quran actually have to say about the matter. And hopefully we come to terms with what is actually prohibited. The first concept I want to get into has to do with the concept of dogs as pets. For whatever reason, and there's a lot of interesting history behind this, Muslims in mass are completely repulsed by dogs, despite the fact that in the Quran they're spoken very highly of. But some of the common beliefs among Muslims, and these are attributed to Hadith, predominantly around uh, Bukhari, is that they believe that, say, the angels do not enter a home where a dog uh, is living. That it's only pro uh, permitted to have a dog for guarding livestock or for farm work. And if you have a dog for any other reason than that, 
then your good deeds will be taken away from you. Or they believe that their saliva of a dog is najest, that it's unclean. And if it touches a utensil, or God forbid your hand, you must wash it seven times. That if a dog, a donkey, or a woman walk in front of someone who's doing their salat, it nullifies their salat. Now, you can tell on the face of this, just there is no foundation for it, but this is what the Hadith are saying. So what does God say about dogs in the Quran? There's only a couple instances of dogs in the Quran, and they're always in a positive light. In Surah 5 verse 4, it reads, They consult you concerning what is lawful for them. Say, lawful for you are the good things, including what trained dogs and falcons catch for you. You train them according to God's teachings. You may eat what they catch for you and mention God's name thereupon. You shall observe God. God is most efficient in reckoning. So here God is giving us an example that if you have a hunting dog and it catches food for you, you are allowed to eat that food. Now, if the food, if their saliva is technically najas, it's unclean, uh, and it makes the food prohibited, then this would be at a contradiction of this verse. God is telling us very clearly that if a dog catches something, and obviously it doesn't catch it with its paws, right? It doesn't wrap it, it catches it with its mouth, meaning its mouth, its saliva is on that food. And God is telling us it's a lawful to eat that food. So this nullifies the claim that the uh, the mouth, the saliva of a dog, you know, is digest to the point that if it touches anything that you have to throw it out or wash it multiple times, uh, this is not the case. And it's worth pointing out that there's a difference between saying, look, I'm not comfortable doing something versus saying that it's prohibited. You see these videos of these kids, they're eating ice cream and then the dog's eating with them. Like, I'm personally grossed out when I see that. But I'm not going to say that the kid is committing a sin by doing that, by allowing its dog to eat its ice cream and also partaking in the eating of ice cream. It's not a sin. Once we say it's a sin, we're saying that God condemns the behavior. And if that you do that, you're doing it to the detriment of your own soul. Now, someone can have a choice saying, look, I don't want to touch uh, the saliva dog. It grosses me out. And that's fine. But the second we attribute it to God and we say, if you do such behavior, you're committing a sin then that's when we commit one of the most horrendous offenses, uh, fabricating lies and attributing it to God. And um, the second instance of a dog in the Quran is for the sleepers of the cave in Surah 18. And in Surah 18, verse 18, it says, you would think that they were awake. And it's talking about the sleepers of the cave when God put them to uh, this uh, kind of a death state but kept them alive. It says, you would think that they were awake when they were in fact asleep. We turned them to the right side and the left side, while their dog stretched his arms in their midst. Had you looked at them, you would have fled from them, stricken with terror. So what is this telling us? God is emphasizing that there was a dog in their midst. Now, one of the claims from the uh, Hadith is that an angels will not enter the sanctuary, the homes, of someone who has a dog in their presence if it's not used for, you know, guarding of a... a the farm or tending to sheep of something of that sort. But here, clearly the sleepers in the cave didn't have their dog to do tasks. It was sleeping with them in their midst. Yet the angels came because it says, we turned them to the right side and their left side. When God uses the term we in the Quran, it's in reference that the angels were partaking in the activity. So clearly the angels went into their cave and turned them, despite the fact that the dog was clearly in their midst. And it says, while the dog stretched his arms in the midst. So this nullifies all these claims that um, uh, 
dogs are uh, prohibited, that you can't have them, that if you do, your good deeds are nullified, just from simply looking at these verses in the Quran. And it continues in 1822, it says, some would say they were three, their dog being the fourth, while others would say five and the sixth being their dog. As they guess, others said seven and the eighth was their dog. Say, my Lord is the best knower of their number. Only a few knew the correct number. Therefore, do not argue with them. Just go along with them. You need not consult anyone about this. What I find so fascinating about this verse is not the number of people that was uh, the sleepers of the cave, but in every scenario, God is emphasizing that the dog was with them in their midst, that the dog was part of this group. Now, if this is the case that dogs are prohibited, that we can't have them for any other uh, reason aside from you know working uh, on a farm, then these verses, they, it nullifies such an argument. And we see that if you choose to say that it's a sin to have a dog, that you know touching the saliva of the dog is sinful at, uh, act, then we're attributing lies to God. In Surah 3, verse 78, it reads, Among them are those who twist their tongues uh, to imitate the scripture, that you may think it is from the scripture when it is not from the scripture. And they claim it is from God when it is not from God. Thus they utter lies and attribute them to God knowingly. How many people have you talked to who you're explaining to them that, look, it's not prohibited to have a dog. Uh, these are amazing companions. They're gifts from God. And they cite what they believe is Quran, but it has no Quranic precedent to say that dogs are prohibited. So the second prohibition I want to get into is, is it prohibited for women to show their hair in public? And one thing that you can tell just off the bat, the word hijab in the context of a head covering does not exist in the Quran. There is no requirement whatsoever to cover a woman's hair as a necessity for being in public. The verse that gets misconstrued is Surah 24, verse 31. And I want to get into what this verse is saying. And it reads, And tell the believing women to subdue their eyes and maintain their chastity. They shall not reveal any parts of their bodies except that which is necessary. They shall cover their chest and shall not relax this code uh, in the presence of other than their husbands, their fathers, the fathers of their husbands, uh, their sons, the sons of their husbands, their brothers, the sons of their brothers, the sons of their sisters, other women, the male servants or employees whose sexual drive has been nullified, or children who have not reached puberty. And it continues, says, they shall not strike their feet when they walk in order to shake and reveal certain details of their bodies. All of you shall repent to God, O you believers, that you may succeed. So when we read this translation, it seems very cut and dry, that it's only their bodies that are meant to um, be covered. But what is the Arabic word that's used here? The Arabic word that's used that creates some confusion is zainatahuna, which means an adornment. You'll see in the Quran that typically this word is used to mean to adore or in the reference of jewelry or something that is flashy. And uh, this word is used three times in this verse. The first, it says, you shall not reveal any parts of their zainatahuna, uh, which is translated as bodies. The second time, it says, they shall cover their chest and shall not reveal their zainatahuna, uh, again, adornments. Um, and the third time, it says, they shall not strike their feet when they walk in order to shake and reveal certain details of their bodies. And again, the same word is used, zainatahuna. What does this word mean? Just from this verse alone, you can identify that this is in reference to the uh, uh, breast and the butt and the hips, the aspect of what is constituted as the body. Why is that? It's because it says you should cover your breast and it says your zainatahuna. And it's meaning that this is part of the, uh, this adornment that they have. 
The second, it says, they shall not strike their feet when they walk in order to reveal their adornments. So what is revealed when someone is uh, walking that shakes? Obviously, it's the butt and the boobs. This is a given. But people want to extrapolate this and say, oh, this also means hair. But there is no foundation for this. This is clearly, it's when it's saying that it's God is giving us the definition of what this means in this context. You know, when you, uh, uh, it's telling the, the women to cover their chest and it's calling it uh, the same word, Zainatahuna. And then same thing when they walk, that they shouldn't walk in such a manner that they uh, shake and reveal what it is. Now, 2431 is giving us the basic uh, requirements according to the Quran as far as proper dress code for women is that they cover their bodies. Uh, and that's, you know, in reference to the boobs and the butt. Uh, but in 24, or sorry, 3359, it reads, O prophet, tell your wives, your daughters, and the wives of the believers that they shall lengthen their garments. Thus, they will be recognized as righteous women and avoid being insulted. God is forgiver, most merciful. That God is letting them know that if you want to be uh, more righteous, it's proper to lengthen the garments. Um, and in 2460, it says the elderly women who do not expect to get married commit nothing wrong by relaxing their dress code, provided they do not reveal too much of their bodies. To maintain modesty is better for them. God is here, nowhere. So you see the same root is used here, uh, Byzantine, um, that's used in 2431. But the key message here is to maintain modesty is better for them. That this is the requirement of the believers, is that we maintain modesty. And if we want to appear more righteous, God is recommending the women to lengthen their garments. So there's no verse in the Quran where it says that women must cover their hair. The way I understand this is that when God gives these guidelines, it's up to the individual to decide how they want to institute it. God sets the baseline, and it's up to us how we choose to institute it. Another example, say, for instance, commemoration or meditation. You know, God doesn't specify how we do these acts. He just recommends for us to do it. And it's up to the individual to decide how to carry it forward. Now, if someone believes that, hey, it's more righteous for them to cover their hair, by all means, more power to them. But to say that God has commanded that women must cover their hair, that if they show their hair, they're committing a sin, this is a fabrication. It has no foundation in the Quran. Um, and we would only be forcing our opinions onto others. And this is something that goes against the credence of the Quran. There is no compulsion in religion. If someone chooses to dress uh, immodestly, uh, there's nothing we can do in the sense of a Quranic punishment towards that person. Uh, the best way to deal with that is via social pressure, where in a society we, we kind of set the guidelines of what is uh, acceptable. And rather than having it come down from the top down, where you have religious police who are uh, berating people who they believe are dressed inappropriate, uh, this is not the system that God institutes in the Quran. But God willing, before we get into the next false uh, prohibition that the uh, Muslim masses have instituted, I want to take a deeper look at Surah 24, uh, verse 31, regarding the address code of the women. Uh, there's two other pieces that people have used to try to twist to, one, justify that women need to be covered from head to toe, that no parts of their bodies uh, should be uh, shown. Um, and you see this with the people who wear the burqas. Uh, you can't see anything of them. Uh, they're completely covered. And then the other argument uh, that's made is that they say that when God commands the uh, women to cover their uh, uh, breasts, that he's saying to do so with their head covering. So I want to debunk both these uh, interpretations. So the first one, when the understanding that they say the women should be covered from head to toe comes from this expression where it says, they shall not reveal any parts of their bodies, and again, the word is zinatahuna, except that which is necessary. 
And the justification that they make, they say, look, none of it is necessary. All of it should be covered. Uh, there should be no necessity for women to show anything uh, because it goes against this verse. And we saw from the previous discussion that Zainatahuna, it means in specific to the body, uh, in reference to the boobs, the butt, the hips, uh, things that can be visible uh, when a woman walks in a certain way to shake and reveal certain aspects of their bodies. Uh, this does not have to do with the limbs, the legs, uh, <laughs> the, uh, these elements. And um, by understanding that, then the question is, what does it mean except that which is necessary? And to me, I think of this in the context of a nursing mother. God throughout the Quran acknowledges uh, nursing mothers and the uh, hardships that they have to endure. And I can imagine just from personal experience with my wife and other uh, friends and family who've had children, um, when a baby needs to feed, uh, you can't exactly always uh, be do it in the most modest of manners. Obviously, you're going to try your best, but that's not always the case. And God is saying that situations like this, uh, it's fine. You're not committing a sin uh, if you're not as modest as you would like to be under normal circumstances. And you can think of other scenarios where maybe in sport or something of that nature, where more of your body has to be revealed, but it's not meant to be done in an immodest manner. The second argument that they say that when God says to uh, cover the, uh, the the chest to the women, that it's saying to do so with their head coverings is a complete uh, twisting of the Arabic. So the Arabic in the verse, it uses the term which means with their covers. And this is a general statement. It doesn't mean head covers. Uh, the root of the word comes from khamer. Khamer is the same root used for intoxicants in wine. And it means to cover. Uh, as in, you know, intoxicants and wine, they cover the mind. And God is telling the women to cover their chest uh, with their coverings, uh, not specifically head coverings. Again, it doesn't use the term hijab. Uh, people have twisted this to say, oh, this is in reference to head coverings, to extrapolate that meaning that a woman must cover their hair. Uh, and again, both these have no foundation uh, when you actually look at the verse. These are ways that it's twisted to extrapolate a certain meaning to uh, perpetuate this false narrative that women must be covered A, from head to toe, and B, that they're not allowed to show their hair in public. So we talked about pets and specifically dogs. We talked about uh, dress code for women. The next one is dietary prohibitions. And we did an entire episode on dietary prohibitions. And I'm just going to read the verse in Surah 6, verse 145. These are the only dietary prohibitions in the Quran. And the verse is very clear. In Surah 6, verse 145, it says, Say, I do not find in the revelations given to me. So this is all the revelations. The Arabic that's used here is wahi. This is, means any inspiration, but then also uh, physical revelation. It says, uh, I do not find in revelations given to me any food that is prohibited for any eater except carrion, running blood, the meat of pigs for it is contaminated, and the meat of animals blasphemously dedicated to other than God. If one is forced to eat these without being deliberate or malicious, then your Lord is forgiver most merciful. So these four are the only dietary prohibitions. Carry on is any animal that was killed without the intent of it being food. Irrespective if you killed it with your car uh, as roadkill or you um, uh, an animal killed it before you got to it, if it's not killed with the intention of it being food, therefore it's prohibited. The second one is running blood. This is blood poured forth. Uh, as opposed to blood trapped into the meat. If you can pour that blood into a cup, that is prohibited to, to consume. The third is specifically the meat, lahama, of uh, pigs, not the fat. And it's interesting that God makes this, uh, this distinction because he does the same thing for the children of Israel. 
In the following verse, in Surah 6, verse 146, it says, For those who are Jewish, we prohibited animals with undivided hooves and with the cattle and the sheep, and we prohibited the fat, except which is carried on their backs or in the viscera or mixed with bones. That was a retribution for their transgressions, and we are truthful. So God is specifying here that he could prohibit either the meat, the fat, or both. So in the case of the children of Israel, because they imposed these prohibitions upon themselves, God gave them the punishment of additional prohibitions beyond what we have in the Quran. That's why the uh, Jewish dietary prohibitions go beyond what's in the Quran. But for us, since we follow only the Quran, God is limiting it to these four. And the fourth one is uh, meat of animals blasphemously dedicated to other than God. The Arabic word that's used here and then in the other three verses uh, regarding the dietary prohibitions is uhilla. Uhilla means to call out the name of God upon an animal before you sacrifice it. So God is saying that if you go to sacrifice an animal and you mention other than God, then that animal is now prohibited for us to eat. And it's interesting that it says other than God. It doesn't say that who's uh, sacrificing an animal who you don't mention God's name upon. And this is what happens in most grocery stores. You go into a grocery store, they probably didn't mention anyone's name when they sacrifice. It's probably not even done by a human being when the animal was uh, uh, killed. Um, that it's the responsibility of the person killing the animal to mention God's name. But if an animal is killed, uh, as long as no one else's name was mentioned, then therefore we can eat that animal. Meaning that if someone doesn't mention a name and kills that animal, the sin is on that person who didn't mention the name. But as us, we can still eat that animal as long as no other names were mentioned. Meaning you didn't mention uh, Zeus, you didn't mention Jesus, you didn't mention Ali, Reza, any of these other imams, prophets, deities. Uh, if As long as no one else was mentioned, we can eat that food. And these are the only four dietary prohibitions. Now, it's fascinating that people have gone above and beyond prohibiting all kinds of things uh, that have no foundation in the Quran. God is telling us specifically the only dietary prohibitions in all the revelations given to Prophet Muhammad were these four. One of the uh, caveats that people get into, they say, what about intoxicants? Uh, the reality is these prohibitions, you can't have a little bit of carry-on. You can't have a little bit of uh, the, the meat of pigs. It's all or nothing. But you'll see trace amounts of intoxicants in the, uh, the foods that we eat. Now, that doesn't make the food itself prohibited. And that's the reason I believe that those are a separate category. God uses very strong language towards intoxicants. In Surah 590, it says there uh, altars of idols, games of chance, and intoxicants are abominations of the devil. You shall avoid them. Using similar language to what God told Adam and Eve when he says, do not approach this tree. It didn't say, do not eat this tree or do not eat this fruit. It says, do not approach this tree. Don't even get near it. So God is telling us the same thing when it comes to intoxicants. But that's the reason that it's not part of the dietary prohibitions. That's a separate category. So when it has to do with the dietary prohibitions, these are the only four that are prohibited, meaning everything else is permissible. So we covered pets. We covered uh, dogs. We covered... <laughs> Uh, dietary prohibitions, we covered the uh, dress code for women, and it's interesting that a lot of these have to do with women and the oppression of women. And one of the ones is specifically the access that women have to the Quran and the, uh, the rituals of submission. You hear a lot that they say, oh, if a woman's menstruating, uh, they're not allowed to read the Quran. And this has no foundation. And the verse that they use to uh, apply this meaning is in Surah 56, uh, verse uh, 79. But I'm going to start from 5675. It says, I swear by the positions of the stars, this is an oath if you only knew that is awesome. This is an honorable Quran in a protected book. None can grasp it except the sincere. 
So God is telling us in the Quran, the only people who can uh, grasp, understand the Quran are those who are sincere. Ironically enough, many Muslims misinterpret this verse to say none can grasp it except those who are clean. Because the same word that's used for sincere, mutaharuna, uh, is used for clean. And God in Surah 2 verse uh, 222 is referencing that women, when they're menstruating, that we're not allowed to have sexual intercourse with our spouses uh, while menstruation because they are unclean. So people have extrapolated saying, oh, since it's the same word, it means the same thing. But I want to deconstruct this. First, in Surah 56 verse 79, where it says none can grasp it except the sincere, this is a statement. It's not a commandment. It says you. It doesn't say you shall not, uh, you know, touch this Quran uh, unless you're clean. It says none can grasp it unless what uh, they're sincere. Now, some people think that oh, maybe it means that you have to do ablution before you can read the Quran. But again, this is not a uh, commandment. It's not saying you shall. It's making a statement in the sense that these individuals they cannot grasp. They cannot touch the Quran. Uh, they're it's inaccessible to them. And we see this consistently throughout the Quran that the disbelievers, uh, they're locked out. Uh, God says that they have locks on their mind, that they're unable to understand the message of the Quran. This is one of the miracles of the Quran, that two people, you know, a believer and a disbeliever, they can both read the book. And as far as the uh, understanding of the letters and the words, they both see it. They can read it. But when it comes to truly understanding, grasping what it is that's being said, the disbeliever is completely locked out, despite the fact that it's written in plain text. Also, if we look at the Arabic, we see that it's written in the masculine form as opposed to the feminine form. If this unclean is due to women menstruating, that they're not allowed to touch the Quran, we would expect that it was written in the feminine form because obviously only women menstruate. Men do not menstruate, despite what popular media might tell you. And when we look at the Arabic, it says, La ya masahu, which translates to not he can touch it or grasp it, as opposed to la ta masahu. And in Arabic, usually the masculine form is used as the general form, as opposed to the feminine is used specific if it's only in reference to women. So therefore, this verse, again, it's not a commandment. It's a general statement that's being made that no one can grasp the Quran except those who are sincere, those who are purified. And it has nothing to do with the physical cleansliness. And I just want to pause for a moment to think about how awesome this is. This verse that God is saying that none can grasp it except the sincere. That so many people have mistranslated this verse to insinuate that this verse is telling women who are menstruating not to touch the Quran. As if this is a commandment as opposed to a statement. That these people who have impurity in their heart, they're unable to even understand this very verse that's calling out the fact that they're incapable of understanding the Quran. And another uh, false prohibition that's made, they say that, oh, women can't perform the salat or go to Joma prayer uh, while menstruating. And they say, again, because, oh, they're unclean during this time. But God tells us in Surah 5, verse 6, exactly what nullifies our ablution. So ablution is something we have to do before we perform our salat. So if Joma is part of the salat, so before Joma prayer, we would perform our ablution. Or before we do any of our salats, we would perform ablution. And they believe that, oh, because this makes uh, their ablution nullified, therefore they can never officially perform such rituals. But God tells us in the Quran exactly what, uh, what breaks our ablution and what the ablution is. In Surah 5, verse 6, it reads, O you who believe, when you observe the contact per salat, you shall, one, wash your faces, two, wash your arms to the elbows, three, wipe your heads, four, wash your feet to the ankles. And it says, if you're unclean, 
due to sexual orgasm you shall bathe. If you are ill or traveling or had digestive excretion, such as urinary, fecal, or gas, or had sexual contact with the women, and you cannot find water, you shall observe a dry ablution taimum by touching clean, dry soil, then rubbing your faces and hands. God uh, does not wish to make the religion difficult for you. He wishes to cleanse you and to perfect his blessings upon you that you may be appreciative. So God in this verse is telling us specifically what nullifies our ablution, and menstruation is not one of those. So if we're saying that menstruation nullifies a person's ablution and therefore they're not able to perform their salat or go to the Joma prayer, then we're creating a fabrication and attributing it to God. Um, and again, we're oppressing a 50% of the, the population from being able to perform these ritualistic practices that God instituted for all believers. In Surah 2 verse 43, it says, You shall observe the contact per salat and give the obligatory charity zakat and bow down with those who bow down. You know, and this is you as in a general, you all, all of you. It's not saying you men. Uh, in Surah 62 verse 9, we see the same thing. It says, oh, you who believe. It doesn't say, oh, you who uh, believing men. Uh, it says, oh, you who believe when the congregational prayer, Salat al-Jumma, is announced on Friday, you all shall hasten to the commemoration of God and drop all business. This is better for you if you only knew. This is a general commandment given to both men and women. So to... Uh, stop women from being able to perform this practice or trying to convince them not to while they're menstruating about 25 percent of uh, their lives um, that's a huge disservice to them uh, that's oppression and again this is something that's not uh, has no foundation in the quran the last one that <laughs> there isn't really much to be said on this but it's just funny is music for whatever reason uh muslims in mass they prohibit music now show me one verse where it says music is prohibited. Uh, the argumentation that's made, they say, well, look, some music has uh, bad um, messages and we're just, we're uh, listening to this and we're being hypnotized by it. But you could say this about anything. You know, I could turn any object into an idol. If I think that object is gonna benefit me uh, and has power independent of God, that has become an idol. But does that mean that that object is prohibited? Take the example of Advil. You know, if I take an Advil because I have a headache, if I think the Advil is what's going to relieve my headache, uh, uh, independent of God, then I'm giving power to that Advil. But does that mean that Advil is prohibited? Of course not. Now, if there's music with a bad message, you know, it's the message that's prohibited, not the music as a whole. You know, listening to music is a blessing from God. Our uh, physiology, our minds in, uh, are constructed in such a way where we get joy and uh, pleasure out of being able to hearing something that's uh, aesthetically pleasing. Now, as submitters, we want to choose music that we uh, resonate with the message. We wouldn't want to listen to something that's going to impose uh, messages that are sinful, that are uh, full of vice. But that's a personal choice to prohibit music outright uh, that, uh, you know, <laughs> flutes and whistles and uh, horned instruments are prohibited and only drums are allowed. Uh, it's nonsense. There is no foundation in the Quran. Now, what's funny is one of the verses that they try to twist to get this understanding is in Surah 31, verse 6. It says, Among the people, there are those who uphold baseless hadith and thus divert others from the path of God without knowledge and take it in vain. These have incurred a shameful retribution. This word hadith, you'll see in some translations, they'll put in parentheses that they say it's uh, music, uh, that this is what this baseless hadith is. But it doesn't mean that. Uh, it's not music. The word is hadith. It means narration, as in these false narrations they attribute to the prophet to justify these uh, false prohibitions that they institute to the masses. 
In Surah 39, 32, again, it says, Who is more evil than one who attributes lies to God while disbelieving in the truth that has come to him? Is hell not a just requital for the disbelievers? In Surah 6, verse 114 through 116, it says, Say, uh, shall I seek other than God as a source of law when he has revealed to you this book? Fully detailed, those who receive the scripture recognize that it has been revealed from your Lord truthfully. You shall not harbor any doubt. The word of your Lord is uh, complete in truth and justice. Nothing shall abrogate his words. He is the hear, the omniscient. And it says, if you obey the majority of people on earth, they will divert you from the path of God. They follow only conjecture. They only guess. Now, if someone chooses to continue prohibiting music, they prohibit dogs, they prohibit uh, women showing their hair in public, they prohibit um, uh, someone, uh, a menstruating woman from uh, observing the Salat or reading Quran or dietary prohibitions beyond what's specified in the Quran, then they're following a source other than that of God in the Quran. Uh, they have another idol that is giving them religious laws that are never authorized by God. Now, everyone can, is free to choose and believe whatever it is they want. But the second we do that, God is calling that one of the most uh, abominable acts is attributing lies to God. Because the second we say that God prohibited something, it means if someone conducts that act is that they're committing a sin. And this is not something to be taken lightly. You know, you could say you have a preference. I prefer not to eat this. I prefer not to eat that. Uh, I prefer to do things a certain way. But the second we attribute it to God and we make it a commandment, then we're trying to put authority on something that God has says has no authority. And we're only fooling ourselves and those who follow us. God willing, we're going to end there. If you guys got comments or questions, please hit us up at crontalk at gmail.com. And until next time, peace and God bless.